I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll catch up on the latest trade news coming from Capitol Hill, where Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is calling for the president to resolve the China trade war and for Democrats to move on USMCA. Plus, we'll break down talk of the administration limiting U.S. investment into China, a move that could have huge economic implications. We'll talk about all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, we're hearing some noise from Capitol Hill yesterday. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told CNBC Monday. Well, I'd sure like for it to reach some resolution soon. It's been very tough on American agriculture, and my party is very deeply based in rural America and small-town America. I hope the president can get a good outcome here, McConnell said. doesn't sound like a lot of pressure. It's slight pressure. Yes. Well, the majority leader also said he admired the president's willingness to take on China. He did. The key to this comment is Senator McConnell is on the ballot November 2020. And there's some farmers in Kentucky. Last I checked, yes. Quite a few. And so I think what he's doing, he has a couple of audiences. He has his colleagues in the Senate. He has his constituents in the state of Kentucky. And he has the public at large. And I think he has managed to, as we would expect from a very savvy, very clever political player, somebody who always plays the long game, to manage to make a comment that didn't really alienate anybody. But good politicians tend to have it both ways, which sounds like what he did. Well, you know, in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia, and I'm assuming Virginia too, it didn't rain for about a good month until yesterday. And my lawn is the worst for it. So, so the little it, plot of land you're farming is suffering from drought. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Your, your so the, the soybean crop is in trouble. Is yeah, that what you're so talking? our soybeans are in trouble. So I'm imagining that the soybeans elsewhere in the mid-Atlantic region, in the south, other places um, are not doing so good just from the drought alone. Sure. Weather's actually been tough this year because many places, uh, in the, in, at least in the Corn Belt, started out very wet in the spring. Farmers couldn't get in the fields, and now it's been dry for some time. Weather's, weather's always a factor that, uh, that farmers have to, have to deal with, and not much they can do about it except complain. So they're, they're dealing with weather, but they're also dealing with the trade war with China. And while they to probably admire the president for taking this up with China, and they've certainly backed him at the ballot box, there might be some question as to what they're going to do in this next election if their lives are made miserable, including maybe some of them are going to lose their farms. There's been an increase in farm bankruptcy. I think that's uh, growing. There's been some erosion in support for him, not nearly as much as I would have thought, simply based on, on the facts. The Trump administration's story has been uh, short-term pain, long-term gain. You know, we're doing the right thing on China, and there's going to be some short-term costs. But in the end, we'll win, and it will all sort itself out. And I think a lot of people have bought that. We've talked before about the widespread public support for the president's doing something about China. It's very hard to argue that he's, you know, he's conceptually wrong. 
it's the second half. It's the you know the short term pain people get, will the farmers will say they're buying, but it's beginning to turn into long term pain and no gain because this has been going on now for a year. The tariffs keep getting broader and bigger, and they keep not selling very much stuff. So I think they're getting nervous point that Bill's made frequently on this program is that is that the president's not likely to conclude a deal anytime soon. That's right. So the pain continues. This is going to be chronic. Uh, it's going to be one where the implementation, while the, the policy seems right, the implementation will be questioned more routinely. And uh, so there'll be a point of pressure, which is, frankly, if we want self-government, having political pressure is usually a pretty good thing. So we'll see what becomes of it. So what's the breaking point for Republicans and what's the breaking point for the farmers? I don't think we know yet. Uh, I'm, I'm recall, but I'm recalling our conversation with Blake Hurst of the Missouri Farm Bureau. Yeah. Uh, and his comment is, usually is the February-March period. When they when, go back to the bank. When farmers are seeking loans to, to get their crop in for the coming summer. That's the moment at which, if there's a crisis, it'll emerge about that time. I think that's right. I also think in political terms, you know, that our elections are, are always binary. It, it's not just about whether you're pro or against the for or against the incumbent. It's about who the other person is. I don't think you're going to see a material change in, in farm support for Trump until there's a, 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 a Democratic nominee and they can make a judgment. Yeah, especially— Is this guy going to be better than that guy? Especially a, uh, in a re-election race, it's almost never an, a referendum on the incumbent. It's a choice. It's basically four more years of time for a change. That's what the voters— net down to uh, in an in election like this one where you have the, you have an incumbent president running for re-election. And sometimes it's time for a change. As you're reading back in the, the, the election of 1912, where the incumbent president, uh, William Howard Taft, got a whopping eight electoral votes. He carried two states, Vermont and yeah, Utah. That was because of Teddy Roosevelt. Well, Teddy that Roosevelt split the vote. <laughs> but it was an odd election. But every once in a while, it is time for a change. But that's usually that's the choice. Four more years, time for a change. Well, there's a more recent example. I think in, in 08, yes. the voters felt it was, they'd had eight years of Republicans and it was time for a change. And uh, Obama won. I think, frankly, at that point, any Democrat would have won. Because I think the people people made up their mind it was time for a change. I think in 2016, the, the same thing happened again. Now, in 2020, Trump will say, you know, the question for elections is always, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And Trump is going to say yes, and his opponent, if he has any brains, is going to say no. And then that's what the debate will be about. And in part, it'll really depend, I think, more on economic conditions a year from now than it does right now. So when should the Republicans in Congress, McConnell and others, put more pressure on Trump to get a deal done sooner? Well, I think from the McConnell quote, it's already beginning. I mean, he's he's an awfully subtle person. Yes. And you you have to really pay attention to figure out what he's talking about. I think as we head into bank season, February, January, February, March, I think the comments will become less subtle and pressure will become greater. But, you know, there's a caveat there, which is, and I think we talked about this last time, He one of the things that can happen with China in particular is an interim deal. Uh, which Trump has said, I'm not going to do. But on the other hand, he says a lot of things that, that end, he ends up doing the reverse. Um, I think right now an interim deal would solve exactly the political problems you're talking about. It would be a deal in which the Chinese would buy more agriculture stuff, uh, which they want to anyway. They have their own pork crisis, as we've been reading. They've had to kill all, all so many pigs. You know, They want to buy more stuff. They've got a little bit to think they can do a little bit on IP that promising not to steal any more IP because they've 
promised that before, so promise it again. And that would do a couple things. It would uh, provide some relief to the farmers. It would relieve some of the pressure you're talking about. It would give Trump an excuse not to impose the next round of tariffs, which would uh, avoid a consumer crisis around the holidays. And it kicks the can, you know, six months. Now, the problem, of course, is then, you know, next spring, you're going to have to do it again or come up with something else because I, I think this is going to drag on for a year. But you can ameliorate the short-term pressures by doing things like that. And he can still claim a win. Sure. Yeah. Well, he'll claim a, he'll claim a victory regardless. But he has to say now that it's interim because it won't be what he wants. He has to get over the, the reality that it won't be the greatest agreement in the world that he's expecting. So he's going to say, this is just the first bite. You know, right. And we're going to come back and finish and it, Which is, frankly, a good way to manage the politics. I mean, President Trump is unconventional, but every Republican president, unconventional or not, basically gets things done because of farm state Republican senators that he needs to rely on. That's how bills wind up getting to his desk. So he will be very attuned to that in the coming year, I'm sure. These are all the red states that put him in office. Correct. So he has to, even though all these uh, members are seriously loyal to him, if they're talking about their interest, and again, with them, all politics is local, he's going to listen, you think? I think the thing to watch is the own party support among voters. At the moment, the president has about, as, according to Gallup, 88 or 90 percent yeah. support very, among Republican voters. Among as long as Republican senators, voters support the president, he'll get their support. So that's the, that's the variable to watch. Keep in mind, too— Agriculture is an important issue in the states that you don't always think about. Uh, it's a big issue in Wisconsin. It's actually a big issue in Michigan. Yes, it is. Sugar beets, fruit, a whole variety of things, not exactly corn and soybeans. It's a big issue in Ohio. It's a very big issue in Pennsylvania, which I learned working for Senator Hines. Nobody thinks that. My father-in-law was a, was a farmer, and he grew uh, cattle, but corn and soybeans as Senator well. Stabenow from Michigan is still the ranking member on the Agriculture Committee in the Senate. So those states do factor in. It's hard to envision, you know, Nebraska or North or South Dakota tipping into the blue column in the election. It is not so hard to imagine a bunch of farmers in Wisconsin and Michigan staying home. Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania staying home. And then, tip, and then tipping the state. That's where the electoral the dynamism column. is. Uh, you know, keep in mind, the, the president won in 2016, won the state of Michigan by 10,000 votes. Right. And we're hearing from our sources that in southern Ohio, farmers are antsy and they're not happy. Yeah, it's tough. It bears watching carefully. So that is something to absolutely watch. And we'll watch for signals from McConnell and his colleagues as we go along. Changing topics slightly, Peter Navarro sent a pretty strong signal on CNBC where he said that recent reports that the United States is considering restrictions on Chinese companies, he called them grossly inaccurate. He called them fake news. There were reports that uh, Chinese companies were going to be delisted from the U.S. stock exchange and that U.S. investors were not going to be able to invest in Chinese companies. And so Navarro comes on TV on CNBC and calls this fake news. But the investment community is taking this pretty seriously. What do you guys think about this? I don't think it's entirely fake news. Secretary Mnuchin made a similar denial over the weekend, but it was carefully uh, calibrated. It said, we are not contemplating doing that at this time. And at this time is one of those phrases that, you know, maybe we're contemplating doing it tomorrow, but we, we were not contemplating doing it on Saturday. I think it's very much on the table. 
I also don't think they're very near a decision. So in, in a sense, Navarro is right in that I don't think anything's imminent because it's complicated and there are a lot of different issues. Some of them are quite old. The delisting issue, for example, that's a debate that's been going on for 10 years that precedes this administration. The Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the PCAOB, has for a long time been upset that what is essentially a clash of, a clash of sovereignty, if you want to be listed on American Stock Exchange, you've got disclosure and transparency requirements that the PCOB, AOB insists on. Chinese companies routinely don't meet those standards because the Chinese government uh, forbids them from doing so. And they regard it as an intrusion on their sovereignty. We've been negotiating this on and off with the Chinese for 10 years without success. It's a legal issue because U.S. Uh, regulatory law and obligations are clear. And I think people are running out of patience here with the fact that we have a double standard. So that's one issue. Now, going much farther and saying that, uh, for example, one of the other things on the table is that pension funds should not or will not be able to invest in Chinese companies or will not be able to uh, track indices that use Chinese companies as part of the index. That is much bigger, much newer, much more controversial. And, and I think it's far from being resolved. Potentially dangerous. Look, the United States economy benefits massively by our open investment policy. We are both the largest foreign investor abroad and the largest recipient of foreign direct investment in the world. Thousands upon thousands of jobs come from foreign direct investment in the United States and are in, just in looking in the financial markets, in the, the idea of exchange-traded funds or list, any listing uh, on our stock exchanges, it's our depth of capital markets that attracts capital to the United States. Also, our neutral rules. So as, we move, as this moves forward, Bill's right, there has been a long dispute about whether Chinese firms actually meet the standards that the U.S regulators apply. But I think you've got to look at this practically. Uh, what we want are neutral rules, and we want them for abroad as well as for foreign firms at home. Now, CFIUS provides that. The only investment review we have uh, is for- CFIUS, the process of- Committee, the Committee on, on Foreign, foreign investment, investment in the United States yeah. is a review of national security, national security only, and many of us think that's the way it should be. But, uh, but also, if you get to the point of, of putting barriers to, to Chinese investment in the United States, whatever they may be, you got to keep in mind there are the, the amount of, of U.S. investment, foreign direct investment and, and portfolio investment in the People's Republic of China, it, it dwarfs the Chinese investment in the U.S. And so if reciprocal barriers are put in place, you have massive U.S. stranded capital in China and all of a sudden American firms are hurt badly and that's, that's going to show up in our economy. There's also an argument that's being newly articulated, including by some people in the administration. And in fact, CSIS is going to have a session on this in a couple of weeks. It's the values argument. There's a legal argument and sort of an economic argument. What we're beginning to see is the value argument. You know, the United States is a country that respects human rights, freedom, liberty, the private sector, you know, opportunity. China is a country that respects none of those things. Do we really want to be doing business with them? Now, consider that policy angle in light of Senator Warren's trade policy that she's announced. It is a values-based. It's a class yes. warfare-based, but it's also a values-based trade policy. She wants to use Trumpian leverage uh, about openness to the U.S. market uh, so we trade and invest in companies that share our values. This is not a sort of a wingnut 
idea. Well, it's a two-wing nut it's idea. A two, it's a two-wing nut idea. A classic <laughs> illustration of what happens in trade is the, the far left and the far right end up shooting at the center. And this is another illustration of that. The far right says the Chinese are evil because, you know, they're not uh, – they're out to get us. And when I was on the China Commission – What does the far left say? The same thing from an economic perspective. What I discovered in the China Commission was the Republican commissioners – it was six and six. The Republican commissioners all thought China was an existential military threat. And the Democratic commissioners all thought that China was an existential economic threat. Uh, and they fed on each other, you know, so they proved very apocalyptic negative reports. Senator Warren doesn't want to do business with countries whose policies oppress workers and don't respect the environment and do a whole bunch of other, you know, good green things rights. and don't respect human rights. The right doesn't want to do business with a country that, A, is communist and, B, is – Takes advantage uh, of takes us. Takes advantage of us, is pushing countries around in the South China Sea. And it's sea. a geopolical threat. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, a national security threat. Sure, right. None of which has a lot to and do with – And steals from us. A lot of things. Well, yes. Then what happens if you take that view is then you have a search for what can we do to get them? You know, what can we do to hit them? And this is the new thing, delisting or uh, going after the pension funds or, or their investments here. Yes. So life is still hard to be a centrist on trade policy, but that's the right place to be. So, but, there, but you're saying there really is a case to limit U.S. investment in the Chinese market. Both no, this, is, right more, this is more about Chinese investment in the U.S. market. No, well, yeah. no, that's not. That's, it's both. It's yeah. both. One of the things that Navarro and Mnuchin's denials of this story was they wanted to calm U.S. investors. Yeah. It's about decoupling. I mean, that's the, word, the, the fashionable word these days. And it's another way to pull the two economies apart, to say, we don't want your money and you can't have our money. And what does that do, ultimately? It slows down growth in both countries. And it, slow, it retards growth. It also retards innovation. Yes. People will tell you that if you're separating, it retards competition. And that's going to lower productivity improvements. It's going to lower innovation and growth. Plus, if this is done with precipitous government action, it increases both complexity and uh, lack of predictability and makes the markets even more nervous. What does Wall Street want? Well, more than anything else, predictability. And there's none here. No, they, yes. I think, Scott, is, I mean, they want to be left alone, but. Uh, yeah, they're that, not going to get that. It's a little, it's a little late for <laughs> that. Yeah. But after, after 09, I don't think that's going to happen. But. I think uncertainty is – he's right. The predictability is the key point. Uncertainty is is the, the bane of, you know, every financial person. Oh, existence. and it does great harm to prosperity in the long run. If you, if you sustain an uncertain environment, you leave investment on the sidelines. You lose productivity growth. You lose innovation. And sooner or later, yeah, you, people, you get poorer. People sit on their money. Right. And if they're sitting on their money, they're not growing. They're not investing. In the long run, it doesn't pay off for anybody. If they don't know what to do or if they don't know if their, if their investment this month in a Chinese company is going to be illegal two months from now, they wait. Finally, gentlemen, we cannot get through a podcast without talking about Usmaka. It's still BACA. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, I know. You're going to run know. out of puns one I of know, these weeks. You know. I know. But Scott got it started. I mean, Usmaka yeah, is so great. It's all my fault. Both Leader McConnell and Leader McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy from the House, uh, wrote an op-ed in the journal the other day. And, you know, basically they said the U.S., they called for the UMCA to get done. They called on Democrats to put it through. And one of the things they said was the USMCA would also help keep North American partners close while the United States hangs tough with China. What do you think of that? Well, look, the op-ed was basically right. The timing of the op-ed was because this, the USMCA was signed a year ago. 
This has been sitting around for no, a year agreed now. Agreed to a year ago. They didn't uh, well, sign it till December 1st. That's right. It was agreed to. Uh, they notified that they were going to sign. But that's a, it's been a year. And look, this is, happens a lot when administrations deal with the Congress, particularly when sort of party unity all, all across the Hill and uh, with, with the White House. So this, this is not unexpected. There's a lot of good work going on. On the, on the negative side, Congress always winds up with a pileup of important issues at the end of the year. They're gone for two weeks now. Uh, When they come back, there's six weeks, roughly speaking, of session left, and there's a very long to-do list. Uh, Now, the positive, once the negotiations with the Ways and Means Committee are completed, as I understand it, there's really nothing left to do but vote. So of all the things this fall, which could cause distraction, if Chairman Neal and the working group reach agreement with the administration. At that point, they're basically saying we're ready for a bill. Once the bill's introduced, it can't be amended. It's on a fixed timetable. It's going to pass. Well, you might as well just vote on it at that point. And so is it fair for the Republicans to be claiming that the Democrats have turned you smacka into a political football? Well, no. I think they're, I mean, I give the Democrats more credit than that. I think they're genuinely trying to get to yes. The Republicans can will always do this because it, it divides the Democratic Party. There's people that are irreconcilably against any trade agreement. Yeah, this is good politics for Republicans and yes, tough politics for Democrats. Right. So, yeah. I don't think there's been an undue delay. No. And I think uh, Scott is exactly correct. Once there is a deal, if there is one, It'll all go very quickly, and and I think this is going to be over with by Thanksgiving. I continue to think that. They'll vote and it'll approve by Thanksgiving. I think so. Then Canada will follow our lead and sign it. Well, I think what that the depends on their election. Yes, but what the Republicans are indicating is they're not going to give up on this, and they're not going to stop uh, sort of poking the speaker uh, to get on with it. This is one, this is a talking point that they're going to continue to yeah, use. Yeah, I mean, they're they're vulnerable on it. First of all, it's it's a classic case of change the subject. You know, if you don't right. want to talk about impeachment, let's talk about something where we can point the finger at the Democrats. Sure. Because the other the other problem the the Senate Republicans have to face. I mean, this is not a McCarthy issue; it's a McConnell issue. You know, if you want to talk about the graveyard of legislation uh, in the U.S. Congress, it's the U.S. Senate. The U.S. House have passed hundreds of bills. Uh, and the Senate hasn't done anything with any of them. I think there's a T-shirt available on the McConnell re-election campaign website that basically summarizes that point. The, the, the leader is quite proud of that fact. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> you know, when I moved from the Hill to the executive branch, one of the things that bothered me about the executive branch was that I thought it was full of people who go home thinking they had a good day if they stopped something from happening. Yeah. And that the mindset on the Hill was to finish. I mean, it was it was self-serving. You wanted to finish because you wanted to get the press release so you could take credit. But that seems to have changed now. McConnell uh, thinks he has a good day if he stops something from happening. Well, look, we had several majority leaders uh, of both parties who liked the House better than the Senate and tried to turn the Senate into the House. So we're, we're, we're down that path quite a ways. Uh, but at this point, obstruction is, is, uh, seems, seems to be uh, worth, worth it for point scoring only. So uh, that was also true when, when you had a Democratic president, a Republican House, and a Democratic leader in the form of Senator Reid a few years back. I wish for the days when you could actually have a vote on something. I went to a reunion just uh, on Saturday. I went to a reunion of uh, Senate Banking Committee staff, people that worked at the Banking Committee in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, that, that must have been a hoot nanny. It, it, was, 
It was much more fun than you would think. You, you say the word banking and people, people's eyes roll, you know, but this was a good group and it was, it was an interesting group. One of the comments that someone, I mean, it was not a group discussion, but I was talking to one of them and one of the comments that someone made in passing, that, that one of the things they admired about Senator Proxmire, who was chairman for a long time. And most William of that, Proxmire. Yeah, Wisconsin. Yeah. Most of that period was Proxmire's view was that you ought to let the committee vote. You know, and even if he didn't have the votes, he would hold the meeting and he would let them vote because he thought that was the right thing to do. Now, at this reunion, and I think that hand- was the right approach. At the reunion, they handed out T-shirts that said, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, as always, it is great fun chatting with you. Until next week, keep it real. Stay with the trade, guys. We'll be back. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thanks Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys a CSIS podcast.